my first year Greek professor at college was an absolute drill sergeant. He was the Bible college equivalent of a drill sergeant. It's interesting, not in my notes, but I just saw Gabe mouth his name, and Gabe wasn't a Bible student. So that tells you something. He was a student while Gabe was there, okay. Well, he was my professor, and he was a drill sergeant. And so we'll just call him Professor Sergeant this morning. Professor Sergeant dedicated himself to one of two goals with his Greek students. And it was teaching his students Greek or making their lives absolutely miserable. He had one of those two goals. And here is how that was demonstrated my first day of class with him. So in first year Greek, you met five times a week. Three, teams, three times for lab, twice for lecture. And the first time you met each semester was the lecture. And in that lecture, your lecture professor would tell you what was due in lab your first lab day. And so the first lab day of Greek, we would have a quiz over the Greek alphabet. We had to write the symbol and how you would say it, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, eta, theta, iota, capital letter, so on and so forth. We had to write it out. When I got to lab class, I studied for it the way I would any quiz a few minutes before it was time to take it. And we got into lab class that day, and Professor drill sergeant said with the sternest look on his face you have two minutes to take this quiz and immediately I was afraid I studied I thought I could say the the alphabet through but could I write it all in two minutes I didn't think so so I started taking my quiz and I'm about half done when he says, like this, pencils down. I said pencils down! Just like that. And so everyone, I mean, you could have heard a pin drop in that room as people put their pencils down. And for the next 47 minutes of the remaining 50, he told us that we were either going to learn Greek or he would make our lives miserable. And that if we weren't for that, we could get up and leave right now and go drop the class. This professor was so demanding. You could go to the college bookstore and buy what were study cards. They were these small pieces of paper with a hole in the corner that already had a ring through that hole so that you could write something on one side of the card, flip it over, and see the other side. And those were recommended for your Greek vocab because regularly you would have vocab quizzes with 10 Greek words and you needed to know the definition. So write the Greek word on one side, the definition on the other side. Our professor drill sergeant was so demanding that you could not go buy those at the bookstore. 
He demanded that you buy the ring, that you buy three by five cards, that you cut them into quarters and make your own vocab ring. Because he figured if you have to do it yourself that way, you'll put more work into it. Maybe you'll put more effort into your study. He had another requirement for our vocab words besides making your own vocab ring, card ring. His requirement was if he ever saw you on campus and you did not have your vocab card ring out studying, he would mark your name in his book. And every time he saw you without your vocab card ring, he would mark an X next to your name. And if he did see you with your vocab card ring, he would mark a check mark. And at the end of the semester, if there were more check marks than X's, that would count toward extra credit. If there were more X's than check marks, it would actually hurt your grade. He was a drill sergeant. So you knew everyone who was in his class. Because you didn't see anybody else. You were walking between classes. It didn't matter what class you were headed to. You had your Greek vocab cards out. You might be sitting in the, the study, whatever that thing was called. The commons, thank you. You'd be sitting in the commons. And you'd have your vocab card ring out. It killed social life. Because you had to study your vocab words. And from that first class period on, I was very studious about my Greek study habits. There came a day later in the semester, and I, I was doing very well, was getting A pluses in the class, etc. I was doing very well, but we had a Greek vocab quiz one day. There were 10 words, and typically they would give the word and expect you to write the definition, or vice versa, give you the definition and expect you to write the word. And our, our professor, Professor Drill Sergeant, he was very big on conviction. And what I mean by that is he, it wasn't like have good convictions. His idea of conviction for Greek class was you might get it wrong sometimes, but at least have conviction. Like if I ask you to translate a sentence or a passage in class, have conviction and do your best. So be convicted in that way. So we had this Greek vocab quiz. Ten words, ten definitions. That was standard. So I'm doing my vocab quiz, and for the life of me, there was one particular term I could not remember the definition of. I'd studied. I rarely missed one of these on vocab quizzes, but this particular word, I just could not think of the definition. I'm thinking through, okay, it's a compound word, this word, and this word. It's this particular verb ending, so it's a present active indicative. Oh, but I can't, I can't think of the definition. So as we're going through, I don't know if Professor Drill Sergeant saw the look of despair on my face during the quiz or what. But as we're going through grading the quiz in class, he would call on people to give the different answers for the word. So, uh, so-and-so, tell me what the answer to number one is. Jill, tell me what the answer to number two is. Uh, Frank, tell me the answer to number three. And we get to, let's say it was number eight, the one I didn't know. We get to number eight. And it's not just, Mike, tell me the answer to number eight. It was, Mike, come up to the board 
and write the answer to number eight on the board. Oh my goodness. I knew I was about to get a thrashing from Professor Drill Sergeant. So I walked up to the board. I positioned myself very carefully. If, if he was sitting here, let's say this is the blackboard and he's sitting over here. Positioned myself very carefully and wrote, I don't know in all capital letters and I stepped aside and he saw it and then he turned and he gave me a look that would scare the hair off of anybody and I looked straight back at him and I said and I am convicted about that answer <laughs> thankfully the, the death look turned to a smile and he laughed and told me to sit down but he, he preached have conviction Conviction can be a very positive quality in different areas of life. It was certainly a positive thing when it came to studying Greek. But friends, conviction amounts to very little in relation to salvation. Let me explain what I mean. In Luke chapter 10, we find an account of Jesus interacting with a man who the Bible calls a lawyer. And I think it's fair to say that this man, as was true of many of the Jews of his day, was a man of conviction. He was a man who knew what he believed and stood by what he believed. And as he came to Jesus, his conviction is on display. Notice, if you would, beginning in Luke 10 and verse 25. The Bible declares, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, tested him, tried him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he, the lawyer, answering, said to Jesus, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he, Jesus, said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. But he, the lawyer, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou, Jesus is saying to the lawyer, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he, the lawyer, said, he that showed mercy on him. 
Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do likewise. As you think about what's going on here, this lawyer who comes to Jesus, would you agree that you can pick out even from this text that this lawyer was a man of conviction? He was a man who had a good idea of what he believed, and he stood by it. Some have wondered at this lawyer's motivation. Was he like some of the other religious leaders trying to trap Jesus in his words? Was he a man of sincerity? And regardless of his motivation or sincerity, whether he was simply trying to trap Jesus and turn people against him, or whether he was a man of sincerity who sincerely was seeking God and seeking truth, regardless, his conviction is apparent. Notice how we see it in verse 25. We see it through this. He believed he could earn eternal life through doing. Do you see that in verse number 25? What shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? He believed that he could do something. There was some work he could do. There was something he could accomplish. There was something he could put his effort into that would be enough to earn him eternal life. He had that conviction. It's, it's further evidenced by what we find in verse number 29. What do you see there? He's asking Jesus a question. He wants a, a definition of neighbor. He wants a, some type of boundary or some type of limit to be put on who is my neighbor. But notice why he asked the question. That's always important, isn't it? When your kids or your grandkids don't come to you asking for something, they're asking for money or they're asking for permission to do something, often the why behind the what's very important, right? Well, why do you want to do that? Why do you need that money? Why do you want to hit your brother? Why do you want to to go get a pair of scissors or to go get a knife, you know? Why? The why behind the what's important. Why does verse 29 say that he asked Jesus for a limit or a boundary on who his neighbor was? Because he wanted to do what? Justify himself. He wanted to justify himself. And then we get into the second half of the passage, which is very familiar to us. It's the parable of what? The Good Samaritan. But I think it's important, don't you, that we keep this in context. The parable of the Good Samaritan is Jesus' response to the conversation with this lawyer. It's, the, it's his response to teach some truth that is important to us. Through understanding this entire passage in context, it produces four takeaways that we should understand today. Number one is this. People are not capable of loving God supremely and others sincerely, perfectly and consistently. If you follow the context and what is going on here, this man is asking Jesus, what shall I do? 
And Jesus answers him according to his question. In other words, <clears throat> this man is convicted that salvation is about what he does. And Jesus essentially is going to say this, okay, if salvation is about what you do, if it's about obedience to the law, what does the law say? And the lawyer correctly answered. He, he gave a right estimation. He didn't repeat the whole law. He simply repeated the, the important aspect or the, the heart behind God's laws. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your might, and your neighbor as yourself. And what does Jesus say? You hit it. That's correct. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? If salvation is about doing, then what you must do is love God supremely and love others sincerely, perfectly, and consistently. But I think we would all admit, wouldn't we, that we have a problem now? Even the closest human relationships reveal the inability of men to live up to this standard always. Think about your own relationships. We would all perhaps define our closest human relationships differently. For many of us, either presently or at some time in our life, we might say our closest human relationship was or is the relationship with our spouse. For some, perhaps you might say, the closest human relationship you've had or that you have is with your parents or with your children. Perhaps some would even answer differently, but think of your closest human relationships. Even the closest human relationships reveal man's inability to live up to the standard, to love God supreme, supremely and others sincerely, perfectly, and consistently. Because which of your relationships is perfect? Can anyone name one perfect relationship that you have? A relationship, I'm not saying is good right now. Well, you know, my wife and I didn't fight this morning, so we're good. You know, we, we, we did have a, a disagreement recently and some things were said, but we talked through it and, and we apologized or I apologized or whatever the case may be, and we're good right now. That's not the question. The question is, which of your human relationships has, has involved love perfectly and consistently? In other words, all the time. Can anyone name a, a single human relationship that's, the, that's been true of? And of course the answer is no. Who can say, I have loved God perfectly with all of my being? in every way and in every moment. Can anyone claim that? Who can say, I have loved every person and sought only their best and highest good always? Who can say that? We have a problem. Because we are not capable of this. We're not capable of loving God supremely and others sincerely, perfectly, and consistently. 
we have to say no, right? I've not done that. I'm not capable of it. And, and not say no for someone else. Yeah, pastor, you're right. So-and-so can't do that. I know. We have to say no for ourselves. I can't do that. I've not done that. And so think about it for a few moments. If we are incapable of doing this, and this is the law, this is what God demands, this is what God requires, and we're not capable, then I think there are some truths that we can draw from this. First is this, every other sin is rooted in this. Think of any sin you want. Any sin that you've been guilty of. Any sin you're currently guilty of. Anything you've ever done against God is rooted in your inability to love God supremely and others sincerely, perfectly, and consistently. Sometimes the question is asked, what came first, the chicken or the egg? You've heard the, the question asked, right? And we can argue and we can debate and perhaps some would think one thing and some would think another and go, well, you can't prove it. You can't prove that your point's the right one. And that's true in that case. But I, I, would, I would say to you this morning, there is something I can say for certain about sin. Sometimes we define sin for children very simply. Sin is anything we think, say, or do that displeases God. And God hates sin. Friends, can I share with you a truth this morning? Sin is not first a matter of something I say, think, or do. Sin is first a matter of what I fail to do. Because I fail to love God supremely and others sincerely, perfectly, and consistently. So you can say anything you want. Well, I stole this or that from, from this person or from that company. Was the stealing the, the first act of sin, if you will? No. Failing to love God supremely and others sincerely was the first problem. And that is true with anything and everything. This, then, represents our most common and egregious sin. Think about that. If every sin is rooted in this, and it's not first a matter of the thing I did, but my failure to do this, then this is our most common and egregious sin. Y you see, worse then the acts that spring from this is the failure to love God and others as we should. To fail to love either God supremely or others sincerely is to fail in both. 1 John chapter 4 in verse number 20 says this, And if a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? So, so one could claim, well, I love God. But John writes, if you fail to love your brother, 
Okay, don't, don't fall into the trap of the lawyer. Well, who's my brother? Jesus would answer the same way when the lawyer asked him, who's my neighbor? If you fail to love others sincerely, you fail to love God supremely. You fail in both. And so what, we, what we've come to realize as we read this text, as this lawyer comes to Jesus and says, what shall I do? And Jesus answering him accordingly, well, if salvation is about doing, what does the law say? Well, love God supremely, love others sincerely. Well, then who's my neighbor? And what we find out is we are incapable of doing this perfectly and consistently. And so number two... The progression is salvation cannot be gained through the law. And this represents the error of the lawyer's approach to Jesus. He was a professional who knew the law. That's what the lawyer of his day was in the Jewish community. It wasn't about the, the political law. It wasn't about man's law. It was about God's law. The lawyer knew the Torah. The, the Pentateuch, the first five books and the commands found there. And he knew the Mishnah, later known as the Talmud, the, the oral tradition, the commentary about the law, and he knew it well. The lawyer, if he had been asked by Jesus, could likely recite all 613 commands contained in the Torah. He thought as many Jews of his day did, that he earned salvation by being a good Jew. I'm a son of Abraham. I'm a law keeper. I'm a good Jew, so I'm saved. And again, how, how do we know this is true of him? Look at his question. What shall I do? And willing to justify himself. Luke chose an interesting word. Justify is the word dikaio. And it means to render just or innocent. Often we define this word as to declare righteous. So this lawyer asking Jesus, well, who is my neighbor wanting to justify himself? He wanted to be able to look at himself and his works and declare himself good. He wanted to be able to look at what he did. Look at the totality of his life and say, well, I'm good. I'm righteous. That's what he was doing. That's what he was after. And by the way, friends, this represents the majority thought. The majority of people who are trying to make a way to God try to make a way to God with a if I can just do enough mentality. A recent survey that was conducted by Arizona Christian University recent is in mid-2020 found that over half of people who consider themselves Christians quote, believe that a person can qualify for heaven by being or doing good. So in the survey, they asked people the question and then asked them to affirm certain statements. And more than half affirmed the statement, I can qualify for heaven by being and doing good. Additionally, the survey found that huge proportions of people who affirmed that 
were people who faithfully attended churches whose official doctrine stated that eternal salvation comes only from embracing Jesus Christ as Savior. So over half of people who called themselves Christians said, I can qualify for heaven by being or doing good, and a majority of them came from churches whose doctrinal statement said salvation is only through Jesus. The problem with this thinking that I can do enough, that I can be good enough to earn my way to heaven is, is vast. First of all, it's not what we think of ourselves, but it's how God sees us. This lawyer asked Jesus a question, who's my neighbor? Because he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to look at himself and look at what he did and say, I'm good. I'm righteous. But there's a big problem with that because it's not how we see ourselves. It's how God sees us. And what does God say about us? There's none righteous. No, not one. They are altogether become filthy what we read about us in the scripture and how God sees us is that we are all sinners, that we are all guilty before a righteous, a holy, a just God. And to gain salvation through the law requires that we love God supremely and others sincerely, perfectly, and consistently. And we might say, well, that's not fair. God then makes it impossible. And the reality is, no, God doesn't make it impossible. We made it impossible. Because we make wrong choices. Because we do wrong. And we do wrong because we fail to love God and others as we should. And so salvation cannot be gained through the law. But I want you to see this third Truth, this third takeaway from this text. As the Samaritan helped the Jew who could not help himself, so Jesus did for us what we could never do. I want you to think about and contextualize the shock of Jesus' parable. It would have been shocking to everyone who heard it. If it was only Jews who were the audience to Jesus sharing this parable, they would have been shocked to hear that a Samaritan would stop and help a Jew. But by the way, that road went both directions. If there were Samaritans present who heard Jesus share that, they would be shocked that one of them would stop to help a Jew who was laying on the road dead. Even Gentiles in the crowd would have gone, wow, that would never happen. The Jews considered the Samaritans in a way even worse than Gentiles. They were descendants of Jews during the captivity who had intermarried among people from many different nations and many different places and, and created this kind of 
in the Jewish mind of the day, this half-breed society that, that weren't Jew and weren't Gentile, they were somewhere in between, and that was, that was worse. We might say they were the mutts of humanity. So this was shocking. To think that a Jew would be laying in the road, hurt, stripped of his clothing, half dead, unable to move, unable to take care of himself and his wounds, unable to do anything, that a priest would pass by and do nothing, a Levite would pass by and do nothing, and a Samaritan would come along and instead of kicking him to finish the job, would actually help him. This was shocking. And while Jesus did not tell the parable for this reason, we can see portraits of Jesus in the parable. Wouldn't you agree with me as Jesus shares this parable, the Samaritan came and did what no one would expect him to do. And isn't that true of Jesus? Jesus came in a way that no one expected. Jesus came to do what no one expected the Messiah would do. Certainly the Jews of the day didn't. Even Jesus' own disciples didn't expect him to do what he came to do. Jesus did what the law could not do. The Samaritan did for this Jew what he could not do for himself. And even God's law that had been given to the Jews didn't cause the priest to stop and say, hey, let me help you. Didn't cause the Levite to stop and say, hey, let me help you. By the way, there again you see the inability of man to obey God's law perfectly and consistently. Because if the priest had been obedient to the law, if the Levite had been obedient to the law, what would they have done? Stopped and helped the man, but they didn't. They may have had every excuse under the sun, some that they would have even considered good excuses. But they failed to obey God's law. And even with the law, it was no help to that Jew lying half dead in the road. But Jesus came and did what the law could not do for us. Jesus freely gave himself and his resources just like this Samaritan did to this Jew. Jesus loved sincerely. And so friends, perhaps you're here today. And perhaps you're watching or listening in on the webcast and you think, well, let me see what I can do. Let me justify myself. You will never qualify for heaven. You will never earn God's favor. You will never merit salvation through that avenue, by that way, through that thinking. Only Jesus can give you the salvation that you need because he did for us what we could never do. And then I want you to see this fourth takeaway today. While this is not the way of salvation, this parable of the Good Samaritan represents for us the ideal Christian life. Friends, listen to me carefully. We are not capable of loving God supremely and loving others sincerely, perfectly, and consistently. We can't earn salvation that way. But we also need to recognize if, if we've come to that place where we know we can't do it, 
We can't earn salvation. We can't qualify for heaven for, through what we do because we are unable to love God that way and love others that way. We also need to realize that as believers in Jesus Christ, as followers of God, that this is exactly what he desires of us. He wants us to love God supremely. To love others sincerely. The Good Samaritan parable shows us what the Christian life should look like. The Christian life should look like a supreme love for God demonstrated by a sincere love for others. The Christian life should look like love exemplified by genuine kindness even when it is not received or deserved. Think about it for a moment. Contextualize it. How would that Jew, laying half dead in the road, have looked upon that Samaritan the day before? The week before? What kind of attitude would have existed there? Hatred enmity perhaps if if this were a, a record of a real account you could go back in that Jew's life and find times when he had he had used slurs about Samaritans when he had around the dinner table told told nasty jokes or or used uh, hurtful language about that half-breed group of people perhaps there had been times when in his own life he had thought or said very nasty, hurtful, unkind things about Samaritans. Samaritans regularly received only hatred from Jews. But regardless of what he had received, regardless of what that Jew laying there deserved, here came a Samaritan who, in spite of the hatred he received, in spite of what that Jew deserved, said, I'm going to love you and show kindness to you. Now put that in your life as a believer in Jesus Christ. Regardless of what you receive from others, and regardless of what others deserve of you, what does God want of you and me? To love through showing genuine kindness to those around us. How do we do that? How, how, do you, how do you live out what the Good Samaritan lived out? How do you, though you're not capable of doing it perfectly and consistently all the time, so you need Jesus for salvation, can you, as a believer and in follower of Jesus Christ, Love God supremely and show that by loving others sincerely. Look for the downtrodden, the broken, the oppressed, the needy, the forgotten, the neglected, the hurting that are plain before you. As I believe with all my heart, you don't have to look a world away. You don't have to travel to some distant place. For many of us, it can be somebody in the office next to me. 
It can be a classmate or a student sitting in the classroom. It can be the attendant at the restaurant or at the store. They're all around us. We need not think that this happens rarely and I've got to go to some distant place. I, I, I have to schedule a mission trip to, to find somebody to do this for, to do this with. There's nothing wrong with mission trip and there's nothing wrong with thinking for uh, a world away or praying for those a world away or supporting missions a world away. But friends, the reality is there are people playing before us who are just like the Jew of Jesus' parable. We pass them every day. So look for those that are playing before you and love them, not theoretically. I don't know who it is that God brings to mind or what people group God brings to mind for you. Well, well, yeah, I love that person. I, I love that group of people. I, I, I really hope they get the help they need. No, that's not love. The kind of love that God desires of us is love that is not theoretical but evident. For love to be evident, what, what is required? That we do something. So who is that person for you? What is that people group for you? Listen, friends, salvation doesn't come, can't come through this because we are unable to love God supremely and others sincerely, perfectly, and consistently. That's why we need Jesus. And I praise God today that Jesus came and did what I could not do so I could be saved. But the Christian life should demonstrate this characteristically. Trust Christ for salvation if you don't know him today. If you've been holding on to the things you do, hoping to justify yourself, hoping that there'll come a day when you stand before God, you'll have done enough to qualify. Understand, no, you'll never qualify. You'll never do enough. You'll never earn it. Jesus did it for you. Trust him. But then as a believer and follower of Christ, choose love for Christian living. Determine who before you needs to know Christ's love through you and your kindness. And then do it. One writer wrote it this way. The world would be a changed place if every Christian attended to the sorrows that are plain before him. If we, instead of the priest and the Levite just passed on, if we, like the Samaritan, would stop and show kindness, the world would be a changed 